This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and our podcast is there for you 24-7. Wherever you get yours, just look for Women at Work and Laura Zarrow, and you will find us. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and you can find me on LinkedIn. As many of you know, we bring you role models. We talk tactics and strategies, and we examine big picture issues that shape our collective experiences. Today, we're going to do just that and more. Our guest is Sarah Stein Greenberg. She's the executive director of Stanford University's world renowned Hasso Plattner Institute of Design, fondly known as the D School. She's written a game changing book called Creative Acts for Curious People How to Think, Create, and Lead in Unconventional Ways. Anchored in time tested design and research methodologies, it gives all of us easily actionable ways to move past our biases and insecurities to see the world and, dare I say, each other other in new ways and build on that to collaboratively create solutions to even the most intractable problems. Sarah, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you so much, Laura. It is such a pleasure to be here. I wanted to give people just a little bit more about you, and then we're going to dive into things. Um, Sarah's helped lead the D School since 2010. She co-teaches Design for Extreme Affordability. Aren't we all glad she's doing that? And co-taught the D School's foundational class, Design Thinking Bootcamp. She holds an MBA from Stanford University and a BA in History from Oberlin College. And her background includes developing new products and services in a number of emerging markets in Asia and Africa. And now she's our guest and an author. So, Sarah, when I think of your background in MBA, a BA in history, and you wound up at the D School, how did that happen? Yeah, I like to say my uh, career path uh, really makes sense, but only in retrospect. I, I can see the path leading here, but I absolutely never could have predicted it um, going forward. And I think that's actually just kind of a sign of the times. It, it felt sort of strange, you know, for a while to say that, but actually I think that is becoming more and more true for, for more and more people. Um, so, you know, I, just to start way back at the beginning, like I was always a kid who loved to make things and build things. Um, I had a camera at a really young age. My dad is a photographer. There were just a lot of tools around. And, you know, that idea of being able to um, fix problems that are happening in your, whether it's, you know, in your house or uh, in your life or uh, just apply your creative skills in a wide variety of ways, I think is something that I I learned really young. And I I saw that modeled um, both at home and at school. And then, you know, I I happened to be um, just very lucky in terms of the timing of when the D school was getting started because it was happening right when I was a grad student at Stanford. And so I, I, I knew that I wanted to take some classes while I was there that were at the intersection of different fields, um, combining engineers and MBAs, for example. Um, but I really stumbled into this moment when this new creative community was launching. And being a student in the in the room when the faculty were kind of, you know, inventing this new way of, of themselves working together and, and collaborating across disciplines, and then setting the conditions for a group of students at really from all different parts of campus to f- figure out like how how do you work collaboratively together and how do you have a common vocabulary that helps you tackle these kinds of challenges that are really requiring creative action and, and creative ideas? Um, that was really what was happening at that, at that moment that I happened to be landing at Stanford. And, you know, I'd like to say, I really, I found my people um, and I've, <laughs> and I've never looked back. Okay. So there's a gap, I think for some listeners, perhaps in the story you just told, Not that there was anything missing from the narrative, but it's that we normally think of design as something visual, as something we see. It's the province of artists who choose to become designers. Yet you're talking about people from all over Stanford, MBAs, engineers, um, and you're not using words like make something look better. You're using words like solve problems. So talk to help people understand what is the D school and why has it become so famous? 
Yeah, we have kind of an unconventional approach to, to all of these topics. And, you know, the first thing to understand is that, you know, design is used to make things look better and to improve the, you know, your interaction with it. And a lot of people think about it as like the way that you, you know, design your living room to make sure that the flow is right or the objects in your home to bring you joy and to, to be beautiful to interact with. But, you know, design is also like the experience that you have at the DMV, whether that's a good one or a bad one right? Debate, (laughs) you know, hot debate in many places. Um, you know, the, the way in which you go through the experience of buying something on online, right. That experience has been designed very carefully and increasingly design is even being used to tackle really complex problems in government, for example, or in the social sector more broadly or in education. And it's really, if you think about it, it's any place that you in intentional way, try to apply in our case, a very user-centered, a human-centered approach to looking at what are the needs, what are the problems that can be found in this in this situation, what are the opportunities to improve them, and how can we apply some creative juice to really to to really you know in some cases really leapfrog what the experience is like. So it has design has become this much more holistic and wide ranging set of practices. Now we borrow from the ways in which artists and designers have always worked very intuitively, but I'll say you know I speak to some designers who who don't. Necessarily necessarily um, like use the same uh, vocabulary mm-hmm. that we do because they do it intuitively, right? For <laughs> most of us, we need that kind of vocabulary to understand, well, what's really happening when I connect with someone and I interview them, which is one of our many practices, in an open-ended way to find out more about their life and their needs. And then how do I actually use that to go through what we call synthesis, which is kind of connecting the dots between that one person and what we've observed in the situation we're designing for and maybe many other interviews. And then things like bringing those ideas that you have for solutions to life in uh, in early models, in prototypes that you can actually test and get further feedback. So most of us have this need to understand like, well, what are the specific skills and methods and tools that people in design have always been using to express their ideas um, and put new things into the world? And, and the reality is like when you give a group of people, like, for example, our students coming from all these different parts of campus and all these different disciplines, those those tools, they create extraordinary solutions that that really are quite novel and innovative. Sarah, I have to tell you, as a, somebody with a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree, I went to art school. Um, I was reading through the book, which is organized in an amazing way, which we'll touch on in a minute. And to make real some of what you just talked about, there were exercises that we went through uh, where, say, we shadowed somebody and we followed them around through their day, particularly in our industrial design classes, to figure out if we were designing an object that somebody was going to use, what did they have to wrestle with in the course of the day? And um, but we were it wasn't explained to us in the context that you are now explaining it to the world. But these were fundamental practices um, or even how go out and observe something and find the patterns in what you're observing. So go out and find everything that's yellow in your path today and draw it. And it felt like it was just a prompt to help us draw new things never thinking that there was a deeper methodology that we were deploying that was going to make us see patterns and wake up to things in different ways. And there's an amazing way that this has been harnessed. Who contributed to the writing of this book that have translated all of these practices into something we could all deploy every day? Well, at the D School, we really think about creativity as a team sport. And not only are our classes, for the most part, organized around teams of students or, or professional learners, but we also often teach in teams. And then you get this incredible spark from, you know, though there's a computer scientist on the teaching team and he's thinking about something really differently than the business professor. And she, she brings a completely different approach. And it's just um, very embedded in our culture to be thinking about collaboration at at all levels. So in thinking about how I wanted to try to bring the kind of best ideas forth from the D school, um, really, you know, over the past decade, decade and a half, I immediately thought about how do I leverage the insight and the wisdom of this incredibly broad, you know, community that that collaborates to, to create these kinds of learning experiences. So 
I interviewed over a hundred people in our teaching community and, um, got these amazing offerings, far more assignments than could ever fit in one book. And from that, I distilled and curated a set that I think will be really accessible and really useful to people in, in a huge variety of fields. So if you're working in education, if you're working in business, if you're working in healthcare, if you're working in government, there are, there are practices that will help you bring some of your own creative skills and abilities to your work and also help you figure out how do I activate a team? How do I lead the culture in my organization in a way that allows for more of this kind of creative thinking to emerge? Um, I love these two things. How do we solve problems and how do we work together? I want to take a step back though, um, because, you know, form follows function and the way that the book is designed. It feels actually quite delightful and quite purposeful. Um, for those of you, if you, you want you want this book, you want to touch it, you want to hold it, you want to look at it, it's beautiful, it's delightful. But it also feels like it's organized like a cookbook. That's not just my imagination, is it? No, not at all. And so it's for two reasons. So one is, um, you know, it is highly illustrated, which all my favorite cookbooks are highly illustrated. Um, I want to see, I want to get that sense of like, why am I making this recipe? Oh, cause that dish looks incredible. And the thing that is that, that comes out in the illustrations, um, which I want to be very clear. I did not do, I worked with an amazing illustrator, um, named Mike Hershen, who, who did these illustrations. And we tried to bring forth what is the emotional arc of learning or of working in this way. So what does it actually feel like to collaborate with somebody where you have that moment of rapid bonding and you start to to form that trust that is going to enable you to persist together through a difficult creative project? Or what happens when you have that spark of insight and you connect with someone with real empathy and you understand what, what designing for them or solving some problem that they're having would really mean for them and for their life. And that's the kind of um, the, the aspect that I really wanted to come out in the illustrations. But then furthermore, in the, in the structure of the book, it was really important to me to, to have readers kind of find their own pathway through this material. So there are many wonderful toolkits that are out there for all kinds of creative practices. And often they're organizing kind of like a linear way. Like first you do this, then the next step, then the next step. For me, that's a useful way to learn about design work or creative work, but that is often not what happens when you're actually tackling a project. And so what you need is the ability to sample from a whole wide variety of ingredients and essentially get to the place where you're writing your own recipes. So I want this to feel very much like it's a resource book, it's an anthology. You can dip into this section about prototyping and building things and making your ideas real and tangible, or you can dip into that area and really be working on those skills you mentioned about noticing and observing and training your attention in new ways um, or the section that's all about like practices to help you get really good candid feedback on your work. Um, there's There are elements of this that will you will relate to at different times of your own creative journey at different moments in your work. And so I hope that this is something that people can like dip back into over time as they need that inspiration. Undoubtedly. By the way, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zaro. And my guest today is Sarah, Sarah Stein Greenberg, and she's the executive director of Stanford University's D School and the author of Creative Acts for Curious People. So, Sarah, as I started to dive into this um, with much delight, there's a marvelous um, opening, almost like a mini zine, a little graphic novel in the beginning um, that tells a story of students learning that kind of makes evident why some of these practices um, can be so impactful. Um, well, I can't give our readers, the you know, our listeners the glimpse of the book right now. Can you give us a kind of a short explanation of what their story was, because I think it did an amazing job of making real um, where some challenges emerge and where some of these kind of exercises can really be useful. Yeah, I'd love to, because um, as you said before, you know, we do use design in this sort of more unconventional way. So what does it look like when our students are working on a design project? Well, in the case of the story that I, I dive into in the book, we had a team of four students. They were uh, two medical students and a civil engineer and a public policy student. So off the bat, those four people are going to look at a set of problems in a unique way. And they were partnered with a organization in Southern India, um, which is a, a large hospital chain that provides cardiac care and other kinds of care. And they were um, thinking that their job was really to go in and design something that would help the, the hospital chain further its mission, which is around very high quality at but low cost 
broad scale of healthcare delivery. And the students thought, okay, we're, we think it's going to be something around the patient flow or creating some efficiency or reducing the cost of some part of the service provision. And we're probably going to be designing for the administrators or the clinicians. So they had some hypotheses and they went into the situation. They did observations. They met with a lot of patients. And actually what they noticed when they arrived at the hospital is that there were a lot of people who were waiting And the people who were waiting, not just in waiting rooms, but also in the hallways, outside the hospital, they turned out to be the family members, and they were really concerned and anxious. And the reason for this, as our our students really dug in and got more insight, is that they just didn't have a lot of information about what was happening to their loved one. And they really were concerned and unsure about how to take care of them when this person returned home, which I think is a feeling many of us can Mm -hmm. identify with. But in in this context, that that need for information was exacerbated um, in a really particular way. So the students felt um, very motivated by um, this very set of this human need that they had uncovered. And they returned to campus and decided, okay, that's actually the need, the set of needs we're going to work on. What they came up with is a incredibly um, innovative and quite low cost solution in which they provide training in many hospitals now across South Asia, um, where nurses really teach patients, family members, how to take a pulse, how to practice the right hygiene when you have somebody coming home with a surgical wound um, and lots of other basic healthcare skills. And what this does is it empowers the family member to be a real part of the care team, to know what's going on and to reduce their anxiety because of that knowledge and actually to reduce the rate of preventable um, readmissions to the hospital and uh, post-surgical complications. So it was because the students really worked their way through this set of problems, paying attention to the emotional needs that they saw, and also because they, although they went in with some hypotheses, they remained open to possibility. And they had the mandate from us, uh, you know, as the teaching team to reframe the problem if they found a different opportunity worth working on. And that is the particular skill we're really trying to help our students with, is that agency, that permission, and that sense of responsibility to find what is actually the problem that you should be working on in this ecosystem and, and defy some of the conventional wisdom if you need to about how that problem has been framed. So there are a few things in there that I want to bring into high relief. So one, um, as you noted, they went in knowing that they needed to solve the problem, but the articulation of what that problem would be, what the solution would focus on, was something that could not have emerged before they had gone through this process. And critical to finding it was bringing empathy to the table. Yeah, that's right. And I will say, you know, so many of us are trained as as problem solvers, particularly in a business context, in an engineering context, in a medical context. We're like, how quickly can I get to the answer? But in design, we deliberately step into a project deferring what we think that we, we might have a we may have a hunch, we may have a sense, but we remain open to reframing what that problem is. And that is one of the very, I think, unique ways that design offers us a, a skill set that is vital in a moment when, wow, we are all trying to solve a lot of problems that no one of us has trained for, right? There are so many things changing in our ecosystem. There are so many new things being thrown at us on a daily or weekly basis, both in business and in life. And actually being able to have a reliable way to confront a new a problem that is new to us that we aren't prepared for, that, that we can know that we can show up and apply our creative skills rather than getting stuck. I mean, that is what design really offers us in this moment. Okay, there are some things Things, though, in there that I think defy some of our um, typical expectations and definitions. So um, this is all creative problem solving. Yet the people that you described, an engineer, um, a doctor, um, we don't think of as creative. Yet they came in and um, identified something nobody else was seeing and and came up with brand new solutions. Um, So one is talk to me a little bit about is creativity, you know, I've had I've had a lot of these debates in classrooms, board meetings and over cocktails. Um, Is create is creativity a muscle that gets developed? Is it a process? Is it magic that some people have? Some people don't. I don't think so. I am firmly in the camp that believes creativity is a part of being human. 
And I will say we all practice it freely as kids, but then for many people, it gets kind of systematically trained out of you if you're not in one of the so-called creative professions, right? And so people have this sense of, well, if I can't draw, if I can't play music, if I can't paint, somehow I'm not creative. And that's nonsense, really. It really is. There are so many people who um, embody creative practice in their everyday lives and in any kind of um, any kind of sector, any kind of uh, business context. And part of the work that we do at the D School is trying to like break down some of that you know, those cultural myths that we have about who is creative and what that actually looks like. It is a tremendously creative act to spot an opportunity and design for it, even if that's about improving the waiting room experience, improving the line experience at the DMV, improving the, you know, the way in which, you know, those, you know, students enter or exit a classroom, right? And designing a ritual around that. Those are acts of creativity that we need to do more to celebrate because they dramatically improve how people experience those services and and products and experiences. So another thing that you mentioned along the way was that sometimes we have to, we go in with a hunch. We we have a commitment to solving the problem. We may have an idea, but um, as Cade Massey would say, we have to hold our ideas loosely. We have to go in presuming we're going to be wrong so that we remain open to what we're going to find. Um, Getting into kind of the emotional state and the personality state that we bring to this, um, that suggests sitting with a lack of clarity for a while. Um, And uh, we joke about this all the time on my own team. I'm wildly comfortable. Totally. I even revel in ambiguity sometimes just for those reasons. Let's see what we can invent, discover, solve. Um, And I have teammates who are Treasured parts of the team, awesome at what they do, but that's really, they hate that. They will do everything they can to move out of that state as fast as possible. Um, How can we think about that period of a process and how we sit in it so that we don't run away screaming and we also don't make it worse for the people that are hungry for clarity? Well, I mean, you are describing a real, you know, experience that so many people have had on a team where there's that one person that's like, I just got to keep exploring. This is so intriguing and interesting. And the other person is like, we need to make a decision, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And, and often those are two important voices to figure out how do you harness both of those dispositions and attitudes because you need both of those qualities. Um, we've done a little bit of research on, um, you know, how people think about their own relationship with ambiguity. Uh, my colleagues, uh, Seamus Hart and Kelly Schmoody did a, a, a piece of research a few years ago where um, they had students uh, create a metaphor about how they relate to ambiguity. And you hear things like, ah, oh, ambiguity is like going through a dark forest and I can't wait to get out on the other side. And you hear people say like, ambiguity is like falling off a cliff. It's a thrill. It's a rush. I'm going to skydive, you know, and then you hear people describe ambiguity like, Uh, my favorite one of all time, a student described ambiguity is like falling in love. It's like, you know, it's so scary and exciting all at the same time. And it's so meaningful. And from this research, they distilled these three different archetypes, people who think about ambiguity as something they need to endure, something they need to engage, or they can engage selectively, or for some people, and it sounds like you might be in this camp, people who think about ambiguity as something they embrace. And you need bits and pieces of all of those attitudes to get, you know, to to both explore the full totality of the opportunity at hand. That's the embrace and engage piece. And then you also need to know how to take action and move on and get things out in the world and test them and get more input, right? So really those those dispositions are all quite important. Um, I'll say that the the power of... um, having that emotional connection with the the people that you're trying to design for or that you're designing with that can give you a real sense of urgency about getting the work done. And so there's both this, like we we're exploring because that puts us in the way of being able to find a potentially much more powerful solution and also perhaps a more important problem. And we want to get the, we want to get it done, right? We want to actually make a a valuable contribution. So it's, it's in uh, the way that I really think about it is like, you need to toggle, you need to have the skills to move in between these different modes at different times in your work. I think of it also as when we, and part of why I get excited or enjoy the ambiguity is everything's still possible. Nothing's been constrained yet. 
and that the fun part isn't staying there. The fun part is figuring out how to take the ambiguity and chunk it out, address it, find creating the path out of the woods to me is the really fun part. Um, How hard is it often for teams to work through the dynamic, though, to figure out how to get out of the woods? Right. Well, you, you know that that's the fun part because you have confidence in your process to be able to navigate your way out of the the messiness. Right. And for people, when they're just starting out in um, this kind of these open-ended problems, that is it, it actually those moments of like, wait, where are we can be utterly disorienting. And also they can provoke a lot of team conflict. So one of the tools that I love to use is called a learning journey map in which you retrospectively think about a learning experience or a design experience or a project you've done at work, which is a learning experience. <laughs> this is another oh, one of my big themes, right? Um, and you you create a kind of a, a time series. You look at, you know, over time, when were you learning a lot and when were you only learning a little? And then you draw a second line uh, and you chart, how did you feel at the time? When did it feel really good? And when did it feel really bad? And often what I see on people's maps is that there are moments when the line representing learning is very high, but the emotional line is very low. And what I think is happening in that gap is that people are stretching and it's very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I I think that that is a a reflection of what we call a productive struggle, which comes from mathematics education and other parts of uh, uh, instruction. And that is, um, it's based on research that when you have to work hard to learn something new and you don't get it right away, you're actually much more likely to retain that knowledge and to be able to apply it in novel ways in the future. And that means that when it hurts, it's actually really helping set you up for that next harder problem. Um, You know, it's clear that we can develop our creativity. We can apply that creativity in really novel ways. But there's something about how we work together that's really fundamental and hard. How do you help your students um, find not just empathy, but confidence, patience, um, kindness, all the things that are necessary to take risks together productively. Well, I, I, this is just such an important conversation. I'm actually really glad that you, you framed it as like, it's hard. This is hard work, right? Collaborating is hard. Um, navigating through an open-ended challenge is hard. And one thing that I'll say is that we see our students struggle at actually quite predictable moments in any kind of creative process. So one thing that, that you can do for yourself is to just understand where conflict or tension is most likely to occur. And it's those moments of struggle when you're like, are we, are, is this good enough? Are we going to, you know, ship something that's actually going to make a difference in the, in the, you know, scope of the challenge we're up against. It happens where um, often uh, one person is still in that exploration mindset and another person has like shifted either implicitly or explicitly to that decision-making mindset. Um, and, and so those are some of the things that you can really watch for and be aware of. But let me give an example of how um, we, we help students start to build the kinds of uh, rapport that help them navigate through those tough moments. So we have a lot of um, emphasis on setting the conditions for, for creative work to emerge based on trying to create psychological safety, to actually create the rapport in a team that lets you mess up or lets you come up with a half-baked idea and then have somebody else build on it or, you know, kind of fail a little bit in front of uh, somebody you're testing your ideas with. So um, there are many, many uh, in this book. This is this is a, a category that I found hard to winnow down, actually. Um, one of my favorite uh, assignments is, I, I call it just my favorite warm-up sequence. And I'll have um, people start out in pairs. And the prompt is, tell each other the story of your name. And why I like that one is because it's a little bit personal, but you're just doing it with one other person. So you have a little bit of like, you know, it's a little private, right? Then I'll have that pair find a second pair. So you're a quartet and do another one, which is a little bit more fun, which is 
talk about what skill you would be contributing to the group's survival in the event of a zombie apocalypse. And it's, you know, overtly playful. It's kind of silly. But the real reason behind doing that is that it helps people show off a skill that they have in the group that's not related to your professional identity. So you might be a gifted baker. I had somebody one time say they were actually a trained mediator and, and that would be useful. And other people, somebody just told me that they know how to uh, hollow out a canoe out of a tree. <laughs> so you get these sort of like more personal things, but again, like it's still, it's still really safe. Um, and then you have that quartet continue and, and the prompt is really around, you know, how are you seen at work and how do you want to be seen? And that is a much deeper and more profound layer to be sharing about yourself. And the idea here is you've got to work up to that kind of disclosure. And so you need to build that scaffolding. And, uh, you know, that's where I think a lot of icebreakers really let us down. Either they're just sort of like <laughs> meant to be like a quick introduction, but they're not really connected to the work at hand, or they don't take you in an intentional way through a slow process of building that rapport and, and starting to bond. So the thoughtfulness of the assignments that are in the book that come, as, as we talked about, from all different people in the D-Schools teaching community, it's really about how what's the behavior you're mm -hmm. trying to unlock in your team and then picking one that will actually take people through an experience where they get to practice that behavior in a safe way. I saw that in a very real and very useful way as I was going through it. So I have two teams that I'm launching on something right now. So it wasn't just that I was, you know, discovering your work and reading the book. I'm simultaneously like, oh, I'm going to do that one and I'm going to do that one. Um, but the way that you wrote them helped me understand under what conditions can they be successful. It's when I realized that it was very much like a cookbook, like you want your exit room temperature, you only want to buy this fruit at this time of the year, and remember to watch your oven. Um, but in this case, it was there are exercises for teams that are already well-formed who you're trying to prompt to interact differently. And there are exercises for teams that are just being assembled for the first time and the whole range in between. Um, and I loved how it made me sensitive to those differences in choosing the icebreakers and also how many resources are in the book. Um, but I have a question about how we manage those. So we can, like it says in the book, we could use this at uh, weddings, we could use this in the office, we could use this in classrooms. For those of us who are team leaders, who are trying to make more inclusive environments, where there is psychological safety, where people bring their different strengths, but also their different core identities. Yeah, I mean, this is such an important topic because, as I said, like our premise is that you, ha if you have people who think differently from each other, effectively collaborating, that's where you unlock this incredible potential to solve problems in really novel ways. And yet that is challenging, right? There is evidence that, you know, working in a more diverse team can make it so that you, it takes longer to find that mm -hmm. um, kind of center of gravity and that that jam as a team, um, that that really effective state. And for me, it, that's, it's always worth it. And it's also always the right thing to do is to figure out how do we actually get all of the people who are on our team to be able to, to provide their unique perspective. So one example um, of an activity that's in the book that is really designed based around research that shows that if you have a relationship with people from a different culture, culture than your own that you that helps actually spark your creative abilities in certain ways but it can't be a superficial relationship it actually has to be a meaningful one and this this assignment was contributed by uh, an instructor at the D school named Glenn Fajardo who teaches a cross-cultural design class so he teaches you know half of his students are going to in Thailand and half are at Stanford or half are in the Philippines and half are at Stanford and the assignment is just a way to tell a story with your partner using only visuals that you um, acquire throughout a day. You take photos of your everyday life. On the second day, you spend 20 minutes texting back and forth with your new partner, and you're trying to develop essentially your own language. And the two of you are using these photos from your life to tell each other, you know, to relate to each other in a really meaningful way. And it's just a beautiful example of with a little bit of thought and intention and preparation, you can start to build those bonds, even if it's across cultures, even if you don't share a primary language. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Sarah Stein-Greenberg about her amazing book, Creative Acts for Curious People. So as you're describing this, Sarah, it's clearly intended to be the beginning of a process where a team works together to solve 
a complex problem um, in an inventive and innovative and effective way. Um, but it sounds to me, and I kept having this feeling as I was reading particularly the team building exercises, that we don't have to use them just as the preparation for solving a particular problem that that um, and, and this like moved me on a deep level if if I'm onto something here, that these um, practices, that are rooted in art making, art and design education, um, research, um, can actually be really profound mechanism to increase um, the inclusiveness of our diverse teams, period. I, I feel that for sure, and I see that happening. I think in our in our student teams, I think that it does require that real work to to meet people where they are on the way into a team. And so, for, there are a lot of folks who have had you know bad workplace experiences, who've had challenging teams that they've been on. I mean, every single one of us has been in that you know room where there's been like a brainstorm that was just an excuse for the boss to rattle off all of their pet ideas. So there can be some hesitation around these kinds of group activities. And so really figuring out how do we how do we slowly introduce this into our culture? How do we use this on a regular basis so that it's not just like that weird thing that we did that one time at that one offsite? I think that's how you actually slowly start to build this kind of work into the into the fabric of your organization. Um, so just not being a one-off, I think, is a very important part of that. And also as the leader, you have to model it. So in, in, for example, there's a, uh, there's an assignment here, um, called how are you doing really, which is a way to actually help people get beyond that superficial layer when they're kind of getting ready to, to, you know, whether it's just a, a regular staff meeting or if, you know, it's your, your launching or, or you're relaunching a part of a project. Um, but the key is if you want people to show up in that particular way with some real disclosure, you have to model that as a leader. You have to actually be willing to show what that looks like. You set the bar often. People will come meet you at that level, but they they off, they off they rarely will exceed either your level of vulnerability or enthusiasm or, you know, willingness to share your uh, wild, un, uh, you know, unbaked idea. As you were starting to describe this and use the the undesirable example of the boss that just like claims the stage, rattles off their ideas, gets everybody to nod yes and sends them out of the room or where this happens once every year. Um, part of making this happen on a regular basis is that the team leader needs to, um, like a teacher, bring this to the space, run it, manage it. And we don't want to be dominating as we do this. So what are um, tips that you can give us, gu guidelines, and whether it's an exercise in here or just kind of best practices for how do we lead without being in front? Yeah, I mean, I this is this is sort of very related to my own personal leadership style, right? Like I I have this kind of you know role leading this incredible organization full of people who are full of creative agency and you know super independent and and you know love to kind of run on their own. So I think a lot about how do you how do you really build a community that has alignment around the core values and principles, but also is doing lots of kind of independent decentralized experimentation. Um, so I, I think that um, you gain some of that um, uh, influence by modeling and demonstrating that you, you care about people's ideas and that you're creating a space where people's ideas are actually valued and there's, and there is room to explore in lots of different directions. And so for, you know, for example, just the, the basics of like when you're running an ideation session, really making sure that you're attending to the power dynamics that might be in the room, right. That you're interrupting some of those subtle hierarchies that might be present so that people truly have a voice. And one of my my favorite really kind of um, out there uh, unconventional uh, activities in the book. It's called by association and by association is um, a practice that uh, comes, I, it com maybe comes out of the Dadaist movement. It's kind of related to all the folks who, um, you know, use sort of a sense of randomness to help spark new behaviors um, in their creative work. And it just, it forces you to mash up different ideas that are coming out of a brainstorm in, in unconventional pairings, it, you're just picking them out of a hat. And it allows you again, to like focus less on the best idea and focus more on stretching your abilities to connect ideas in new ways. 
And that, that takes it out of it being, oh, who here is the most creative or the best, you know, at coming up with these ideas or originating them and much more about some of those more collaborative communal skills, which is about connecting and remixing and finding the meaning in what's already there. And so some of those, those, those values, I think can be modeled and embodied in some of these practices in a, in a subtle, but very effective way. And because we're women at work, I'm going to posit this with a little looseness, but the things that you're describing are often typically referred to as feminine characteristics or um, strengths that women have. Um, Doesn't mean that men don't. I know a lot of men who not only excellent design teachers, leaders, compassionate, sensitive, but as a way of hooking into um, that bringing our emotional intelligence to bear on how these experiences are unfolding for our teams is actually centrally important. I think that's right. And, you know, women are seen to have these qualities of being supportive or uh, friendly or caring, regardless of whether or not we actually have these, right? We're much more likely to be (laughs) viewed in that way. Um, And they are, these are, you know, key skills in terms of um, setting that context where um, your, your whole organization can express their creative abilities, right? And again, back to those myths that we have in our society about like, how does creative work get done? It's not that lone genius you know, up on the hillside with the bolt of lightning or the, or the light bulb above his head normally in those, <laughs> right. you know, right. It's like that, that is kind of a, um, I, I think just a very outdated way to think about how do teams and organizations actually come up with good work and come up with solutions. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because design has actually long been a very male dominated field as you know, have many, um, but I see a real shift in terms, certainly in terms of who's studying design. Mm-hmm. We have a ways to go in terms of like who who is like leading in design. But that's part of why I think some of these these tools are so useful, and why I just I want to I want to demystify them. I want to mm-hmm. uncode and unpack them so that more people, kind of regardless of your natural strong suit as a leader, can start to bring these more compassionate, empathetic, com- collaborative tools into work environments. These are the skills that we need, I think, given the kinds of problems and the complexity of the challenges that we're up against. Without a doubt. Um, By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Sarah Stein Greenberg about her new book, Creative Acts for Curious People, How to Think, Create, and Lead in Unconventional Ways. So, Sarah, as you were talking about this, and I'm thinking about the dynamic of um, why there are so many male designers. Um, why, and particularly, I saw patterns when I was recruiting for art school, running an art school, that we would have a lot of men that places like industrial design, architecture more male-dominated, graphic design might be more women-dominated. And I know that there are a whole host of societal factors that contribute to it, how we're socialized, the toys we're given to play with, who our role models are. But it does suggest that when we're trying to create functional teams where women may be underrepresented, that we have to bring an awareness to these differences, not to mention that it's also been a predominantly white field and that we also need to bring all kinds of underrepresented people into it. Um, are there any exercises in particular that if we want to, and and I'll even ask about some that I saw as I was reading the book, that can work better than others for trying to get us to be make room for each other. Yeah. I mean, one that I'll cite um, was contributed by an incredible designer based in Chicago named Chris Rudd. And he developed this. He's, he uh, teaches at um, uh, ID and he, um, he developed this because he um, works with a lot of students, um, you know, around issues of race and anti-racism and um, so his this assignment is called Identify, Acknowledge, Challenge. And it's really meant to surface those hidden biases and stereotypes that every single one of us carries around and that can unintentionally affect what we produce, whether we're in education, whether we're in design or in engineering or any kind of tech or, you know, if we're in the medical field, it, all of these kinds of um, invisible associations that we have with people can filter in. And, you know, I think that the the power of this assignment is it ha- comes in a couple of ways. One is it can be a really effective way to start to raise important questions about 
Who are you unintentionally excluding from the, the product or service that you're designing? Are you showing up in different ways based on who the potential end user is? But I think it can also introduce a really interesting conversation about, hey, who's on our team? What perspectives are we missing? And you know, no one team can be as diverse as the world. So how are we going to meaningfully engage all of the different perspectives that we need to make sure that we're de-biasing or avoiding as much bias as we can, that we're not that we're not creating something that could have some unintended consequences that create harm or perpetuate harm. And that is a lively conversation within the broader field of design at the moment. What are the practices and tools that we need to make sure that we're really cognizant of the, um, the voices that have been, you know, underrepresented or omitted in the field of design and the ways in which making sure that those perspectives are present in our design work, in our teams, in our organizations, that shifts what we produce and, and, and how we produce it. So this is a super important topic. And obviously it's happening, you know, much more broadly than just in the design world. It's happening in tech. It's happening in all kinds of um, corporate environments as well. But it it's so important. It makes me really excited to realize that it can exist on two levels, that we can deploy this as we're thinking about how we solve the problem, but we can also deploy it in how we interact together. There was another exercise um, that was called I think it was instant replay, um, clearly for a team, a more advanced process for team culture, for an already established team. And you were bringing up before there are ethical issues here. Um, and it, could you describe what the exercise is? Because I got to admit, going back to that emotional thing, I read it and I was like, I could see why it would be so powerful. And it also terrified me, like going through it seems scary. That's so interesting because you're a public figure, you know, you're out there, you're getting your work out there. So that's very interesting to hear that that gave you a, a moment of pause. Oh, I'm just yes, as crazy as anybody else. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> that's fair enough. Uh, we all, we all have things that I think are, um, you know, where our own sort of fears and insecurities lie. And, and actually that's like one of those things that I find very liberating about a bunch of these practices is like, okay, let's just stop hiding that. Right. right. Like I'm going to be strong in an area that you're not as strong and vice versa. And how do we complement each other? As, as team members. Right. So right? this exercise, so this, just yes. to fill everybody in, if I understood it, means that um, you record your team, an easy thing to do now that we have all this group work on Zoom, um, so that you can observe the interactions between the staff. And then you have to sit and watch yourself and all of your mistakes. Yeah. So the key to this exercise is that you have to be clear and you have to mean it, that you are not using this in an evaluative context. Hugely so important. The team, the team itself. So for example, if there's some, like you might not want to do this with the team leader in the mix, right? You might want to use this as a tool in which a, a team with a flatter hierarchy could actually use it to self-diagnose what those interactions are. And maybe you support that, that learning by asking for the reflections and the set of prompts. And when people see themselves interact, first of all, yes, nobody likes to see themselves videoed, but the reality is like, this is how everybody else is seeing us. So like, right. I better get a sense of what that looks like. <laughs> right. And and that's actually very different than when we're watching ourselves on Zoom, right? Which is in real time, you're in your body, you're seeing it happening. When you see yourself and it's already been recorded, you can almost see that as like an objective other person and you have a little bit more distance and you can see who talks the most in our team who talks the least, right? Are we exhibiting kind of blocking behaviors or supporting behaviors in terms of letting creative ideas emerge or any kind of work emerge? So, and then beautifully at the end of this, the team can delete the video, right? Like it's not meant to be existing in perpetuity, right? And that also creates a little bit of safety, right? So there, there is, um, that is a great tool to, and, and, you know, this is what professional sports teams do, right? Mm -hmm. They replay the game day tape and they see what's gone well and what's gone wrong. And that is a practice that I think all of us can benefit from in our teams. And just, you know, as crazy as I am and how I get neurotic about being on video, I still listen to my own radio shows and criticize myself, but I want to talk in, with the few minutes that we have left on how we can give feedback productively, because that's also a really important part of this. There's a fantastic section of the book on it. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I took away from art school is that I don't think there is, and especially design school, a better place to learn how to receive and give criticism. Um, but somehow um, people's uh, emotional capacity for it, both to give it productively and receive it well, um, it's hard. 
So give us some guidance. And what's the what are the suggestions that are in the book? Right. Well, I mean, one of the most important ideas is that the the critique should be about the work, not the person. And so there are a few very just practical things that you can do. So one is critique a whole bunch of work at once, not just one one person at a time. So if you create a moment where everybody is bringing in some kind of unfinished work, we actually do this all the time on my team with our, our program leaders. We call them work in progress shares. And it's it's meant to be not the thing you're most proud of where you knocked it out of the park. It's like, this is what I'm working on right now. And I need some input and some feedback. If you put all of those things up on a wall or on a mural board, if you're online or some other digital form, everybody comes around to the same side of the table and looks at the work together. And that's really different than having that lone person be up there sort of like defending or presenting Mm -hmm. their work. Right. And then really talking, like literally making sure that you're using language that's about the work says this, or here's what I'm getting from this piece of work rather than when you did the thing, it didn't work out for me. You made a mess in that corner. It's that that corner could be better organized. That's right. That's right. Or, or, you know, the, what the feeling I get from that corner is one of chaos and that makes me anxious. And, you know, I don't know what you intended, but that's, what's landing for me. Right. And there's even a a practice in the book um, called the test of silence, where you actually, when you're sharing unfinished work, you refrain from describing what it's meant to do. And the reason to do that is to train yourself to see what happens when you're not there to represent your work. You're not going to be there to represent your work. If you're shipping a product or you're designing an app or you're putting something out in the world, you're not going to tell every single user how to use it. So you have to have that discipline to step back and see how somebody is reacting to that, to that work in progress. Well, I have to say the show has been a work in progress and unfortunately we're running out of time. Um, Sarah, I've learned so much from you and so much from the book. I think people have so much to gain by reading it themselves. How can they learn more about you, the D School, and where to find the book. So you can find us at um, dschool.stanford.edu. If you want to just cut right to the book, you can go to dschoolbooks.com. And I should say, we actually have a whole series of books coming out, a book on design for belonging, a book on courage and getting your ideas out there, um, a book on telling stories with data, so much to explore. Um, and if you want to find out a little bit more about me, I, uh, in my spare time, I'm a photographer. I love uh, underwater photography. Um, so I'm at sarahsteingreenberg.com. Sarah, thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. If you have a question, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Follow us on Twitter at SXM Business and me at Laura Zarrow. Thanks, as always, to my beloved producer, Patty Hall, my amazing sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. It's so good to see you guys. We are actually in the studio today. I'm Laura Zarrow. You've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everybody. Stay curious. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 